Please continue to stand with me if you're able as I read from Psalm 32, a Psalm of David. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one in whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the great rush of waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. As I said, continuing in a series on forgiveness, and here this morning, blessed, blessed are the forgiven. Let's pray and prepare to hear from the Lord this morning. Father, again, we, we come before you. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to see more greatly the cross of Christ, the provision for forgiveness. We ask it in his name. Amen. Um, people in this world... You know, they seek all manner of things and experiences in order to bring um, joy and happiness into their lives. I mean, how much money is spent every day upon events, things, and, and opportunities by which people think they might obtain joy? happiness, and yet, no matter what you might add to your life, or what possessions um, you, you might obtain, if you, if you stand condemned before a holy and just God, it, it doesn't matter what you have, what you've done, where you've been. It is all for naught. Conversely, 
for all who have been brought out of the category of condemnation and into the category of no condemnation through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's something about life in the church that is very joyous, very happy. The fruit of a resolute sense, a deep resolute sense of settled security is joy. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, joy. Knowing that our eternity is settled, that we have no fear of death, that we have no fear of the future, we know by grace it's, it's settled. So here we're granted joy. Because verse 1, blessed are the, those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed. That, that word blessed can just as easily be translated as happy. Happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the person who knows that their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Now, it's interesting that, that Psalm 1 begins with the word, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man we read who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, that is the instructions of the Lord, he meditates day and night. Psalm 1. It's not until 31 psalms later that the psalmist opens with the word blessed. Again, here in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now in Psalm 1, um, the blessing is linked to the intimate relationship and communion of the believer with God. In Psalm 32 we are reminded of the dreadful effect of unconfessed, unrepentant sin in the believer's life. Followed by a, a very liberating discovery of, of sin that is truthfully acknowledged before God with a repentant heart. Because sometimes we as believers... Those who are in Christ, we, we lose the sense of what a great thing it is to be a Christian. When, when the joy and the radiance of this life, the fruit of joyful blessing, is dried up, zapped. The reason for the blessing in Psalm 32, has to do with forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness and repentance. Two wings of the same plane that keep the life of faith in flight. 
two wings of the same plane that keep the life of faith in flight. Forgiveness and repentance. In other words, repentance is, is not a one-and-done occurrence. Right? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we repent of our rebellion, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ according to his grace. No, repentance is part and parcel to the Christian life. Has anyone repented today? When the wing of repentance has fallen from the plane, if you will, a hard crash is inevitable. Yet for those who are truly his, it is the love of God the Father, the love of Almighty God that draws his wayward child home. That's what he does. Now, it may come through much self-inflicted pain, but his heavy hand for those that are his will produce repentance. Now, that is displayed. The picture of forgiveness and repentance is displayed no more beautifully than it is through one of Rembrandt's greatest paintings called The Return of the Prodigal Son. We have a print of it hanging in the foyer. Portraying, of course, Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 15, in which the son who wants out left his father, left his home, goes far away into foreign territory. He lives it up, but the experience does not live up to the expectation. It never does. It's short-lived, let me tell you that. He squandered his inheritance on reckless living. He winds up in a pigsty of a mess, and he returns to his father kneeling in broken repentance. Now, the only slide I have for you this morning is that. Okay, and I want you to observe, look at it. In the painting, notice that the soles of his feet tell the story of, of a lengthy, shameful journey. Now, you can go look at this closely later on, but on his left foot, it's slipped out of his worn sandal. It's scarred. His right foot is only partially covered by a, a broken sandal. He's filthy. His clothes are torn. They're tattered. His head is shaven like a common prisoner. His father, dressed in extravagant attire, holds his son. The elder brother of Luke 15 stands with his hands folded, dressed in attire very similar to the father, hands folded in, in what appears to be judgment of the brother. And above, in the upper left-hand corner, you have to really squint to see it, but hidden in the shadows is the boy's mother. And if you look closely later on, you'll see her features there. Now, there's another in the picture who seems to be an associate of the father next to the brother. 
You can tell by the way he's dressed. And then there's another plain-dressed young man, probably um, a household servant there in the background. Now, what is clear is that the father bending over his son is oblivious to the filth. He holds his son close. The, the wayward son has come home in broken repentance. He's on his knees. He's embraced by his father in love. That The boy's eyes are closed as he settles his head into his father's chest. Beautiful, isn't it? Now, the dramatic light emanating from the father's face and, and the father's hands conveys the warmth of redemptive Love, unconditional love that pardons, heals, and restores. Uh, one author spent several days um, in front of this painting, and he noticed something about the hands. He takes special note, and I'm just quoting now. The two are quite different. The father's left hand touching the son's shoulder is strong and muscular. The fingers are spread out and cover a large part of the prodigal son's shoulder and back. I can see a certain pressure, he says, especially in the thumb. That hand seems not only to touch, but with its strength also to hold. Even though there is a gentleness in the way the father's left hand touches his son, it is not without a firm grip. How different, he says, is the father's right hand. This hand does not hold or grasp. It is refined, soft, more feminine looking, very tender. The fingers are close to each other. They have an elegant quality. It lies gently upon the son's shoulder. It wants to caress and to offer consolation and comfort, end of quote. A powerful depiction of forgiveness and repentance. Amen? Now, Psalm 32 speaks of sorrow for sin and the joy which comes when we confess and repent of our sins to the Lord who has forgiven us. Amen? This is what we'll see here this morning. Now, Psalm 32, you can take that down, thank you. Psalm 32 is connected to Psalm 51, after David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, which we studied back in 2 Samuel 12 a few weeks ago, and that was with regard to his adultery with Bathsheba and his plot in killing her husband Uriah. You, you hear David cry out to the Lord in, in Psalm 51, and here in Psalm 32, um, it, it serves as a more reflective psalm of David. That is, contemplating his experience during that time of unrepentant sin. As he kept silent about his sin, as he suppressed it, he describes how it affected him mentally, emotionally, and physically. That's what we're going to see. I want you to notice first the overwhelming joy of the forgiveness of sin. And notice David provides us with the anatomy of sin in verses 1 
1 and 2, the anatomy of sin. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We talk about the anatomy of sin. What we're talking about, okay, what is transgression? What is sin? What is iniquity? What is deceit? The anatomy of sin. First, he, he speaks of his sin as covered, and that's often a picture throughout Scripture of salvation itself. It's covered. God's first act of grace after the fall, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves. What does God provide? Covering. Covering. Fig leaves won't do it. He covers their shame. He covers their nakedness. That's why we sing, by the way, the Lord of our shame. He covers our shame. Now, transgression here um, refers to an act of rebellion, revolt against Almighty God. It's rejection of God's rightful authority, saying, no, I will not submit to your way. I will not submit to your law and to your word. It's to cross the line. It's to defiantly step over the boundary. That's transgression. And here, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He goes on, he says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now, sin means missing the mark, falling short of the goal. Failure to, to live up to God's intention. It's utter failure to come even close to God's standard. As an illustration, you can think of the sport basketball. And let's just say you're out there dribbling and you want to take, you know, you're going to take a three-point shot from the outside line and you shoot and it doesn't even make it to the rim. It doesn't roll around the rim. You don't even hit the rim. You don't, hear the, the, you don't hit the backboard and the crowd cries out what? Air, Air ball. Sin is the airball of your life in the failure to come even close to God's standard. You completely miss the rim. And outside of Christ, your life and mine is that continual airball. So transgression, stepping over the line, sin, missing the mark. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity. It means twisted, distorted perversity. It's, it's to contort something out of its original form. Uh, it's when something is wrung, W-R-U-N-G, something is wrung out of its original shape. I've told the story about, in context to this, changing an aluminum screen window in my home, and I yanked on it, and now it has a dent in it. It's wrung out of its original shape. There's nothing I can do to fix it without, uh, short of replacing it. It's wrung out of shape. It reminds me of this verse every time I look at it. In other words, the, the iniquity of our nature is twisted, it's contorted, it's wrung out of its proper shape, it's twisted, turned, perverted. Iniquity. And then deceit. Notice, blessed is the man who's, whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no de deceit. Deceit is the cover-up. Deceit is the attempt to, to cloak yourself in, in fig leaves. 
It's excusing or projecting blame on others. It's never my fault. It's where I grew up. It's my parents' fault. It's my community's fault. It's my neighborhood's fault. Deceit. And at heart, you and I are rebels in revolt against God, not merely falling short, but we are twisted, iniquitous transgressors who practice deceit. Does anyone think that they're not that? That is what I am outside of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's what everybody is outside of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So to to understand the joy and happiness of forgiveness, it's necessary that you realize what it is you're forgiven of. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. So as the psalmist, notice, used three words, and including deceit four, for the anatomy of sin... Also notice here he uses three words for forgiveness. Forgiven. This is the one, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. That, that forgiven um, refers to, to lifting up and, and taking away. He lifts it up, he, he takes it away, he carries it away, he removes the guilt of sin. He does that. Forgiven. It's the relief of a burden. And notice, he also speaks of our sins as being covered. That means to hide a record that is against us. He covers it. And third, our sins, are, they no longer count against us. They're carried away. They're lifted up. The guilt is removed. He covers. He hides our record. And they no longer count against us. Beautiful. You're not held liable for what you owe. In other words, he dismisses the debt. Friends, there's no way to know this about God unless he reveals it about himself. You wouldn't think of God like this without divine revelation. You you, you would think of him in your guilt of being ready to what? Crush you. And he is if you're in the category of condemnation. But it's been lifted up and taken away if you've been moved to the category of no condemnation. So if the burden is lifted, the question is, who carries it? Who carries the burden? Second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He lifted the burden. So if the record is erased, how is it done? Second Corinthians, or Colossians 2, verse 14, referring to Christ and his death on the cross, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He canceled it. Nailed it to the cross. So if he dismisses a debt, who pays for it? Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord... The Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity, the perversity, the twistedness of us all. Christ lifts the burden. Christ lifts the burden. God sent his son. The record is erased. The dismissal of the debt paid through the finished work of Christ. Now, next, David teaches us the mercy of misery. Did you catch that? The mercy of misery with regard to unconfessed sin. Now, here, David goes on and he rehearses his unrepentant past. After he committed this sin with Bathsheba, killing Uriah, trying to cover his tracks, he went upward of a year without repenting and confessing this sin to the Lord. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He says, look, I kept it in. I tried to cover it. I didn't divulge it. And then a physical manifestation of how his guilt affected him was made clear to him. He, he tried to suppress it. It was this, this constant emotional, internal torture as he tried to hold down the reality of his guilt. And he went silent. He went silent. When I kept silent, I wasted away inside. You ever been there? <laughs> now, silence for some is the silence of neglect. You just stop saying sorry. You just stop saying and crying out, please forgive me. You're no longer on speaking terms with God. Now, at one time, it was a cherished privilege. That's how you understood it. But you're no longer on speaking terms with God. Question. Do you talk to God? Do you speak to him first thing in the morning? Do you, before you go to bed, is the final word out of your heart to the Lord? Or have you gone silent? Now, others suffer from the silence of despair. Talking about Christians. They're paralyzed by it. They, they, they think that forgiveness is possible through Christ Jesus, who died on the cross, but, but not for me. Despair. They do not speak. They remain silent. And let me assure you, if, if, if you suffer from the silence of despair, thinking that, that your sin is beyond the forgiveness of God through Christ Jesus, I say to you, repent of that because that's pride. Repent. Confess it. Return. And you'll once again be on speaking terms with God. In other words, you cannot sin yourself out of God's grace when there's a desire to return. Amen? The fact that there's a desire to return means you're his. So speak. Now, David is silent. 
and, and sometimes suppressed guilt that, that, that has gone unconfessed for some period of time. Um, it's covered over. Um, it's ignored. will show itself uh, by way of emotional and physical symptoms. And David says, that's exactly what happened to me. Notice verse 4. For day and night, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength, my kingly vigor was dried up like the summer heat. So heavy guilt for David caused insomnia. His wheels were constantly turning. He couldn't shut it off. He's tormented within. He says, your hand was like a weight coming down from above. It's like being in a divine pressure cooker. Season of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. He's withering away. His vitality is dried up. No energy, physically, emotionally stressed. So the misery of guilt for the Christian shows itself here as a mercy of God, right? If you've ever been here where David has been, and you've been miserable like this in a season of unconfessed, unrepentant sin, this is an act of God's mercy. It's mercy. David says it was your hand that was upon me night and day. God did this in order to flush me out, in order to chase me out of the woods of my hiding. He'll chase you out. He'll come after you, the hound of heaven. David says, basically, when I would wake up in the morning... He was there. It hit me. I go to bed at night. It hit me again. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and there he was. He hit me again when I kept silent. Now, had David gone to a, a psychiatrist or a physical therapist for this ailment, they would have treated the symptoms, missing the cause. This is putting a Band-Aid on it. Now, the, the world, they, they might diagnose David with some kind of disorder, give him some pills, manic depressive. Who's not in this condition? Or they might conclude that, well, you're a victim of some past experience, something your mother did to you. You missed the cause. So his symptoms showing up in the physical, showing up, showing up here in the psychological um, areas of, of, of his body cause great pain, anxiety. The problem's spiritual. His problem was spiritual. You know, there's a story of a man who had a foot ailment, great pain in his foot. He couldn't walk upstairs. He goes to the doctor, gets x-rays. The, the x-rays show absolutely nothing. They tried special shoes and insoles and inserts and bandages and wraps and heat and, and ointment. It did absolutely nothing. Months later, he went to the dentist for a routine checkup, and it was discovered he had an abscessed tooth. Take the tooth out, guess what went away? pain in his foot. 
Something with the nerve. It caused no local pain in his mouth. Foot pain was gone. Never came back. That's what's going on here. Sometimes the cause can be very a very deep-seated problem in the symptoms that show up elsewhere. Anxiety, sleeplessness, you know, here he had a lot of distress. You know, sometimes a Christian will limp around physically, depressed in heart, joyless, hopeless, regularly ailing, physically and emotionally, but the cause is spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean every time, and I don't, when you see your friend limping in the lobby, <laughs> you, that doesn't necessarily mean that there must be unconfessed sin in your life, brother. But it could be. David says that was the, that, that, that's the fact of the matter for me. But yet, this is a, a mercy of misery. God brought this about in David's life in order to lead him to repentance, amen. That's how good God is. He will not allow us to be comfortable and content or cheerful in the midst of a season of unrepentant, unconfessed sin. He'll deal with it. Because he chastens those he loves. Unconfessed sin robs us of our vitality. David says it right here. And it's as though you're wasting away. Next, notice the application of redemption. Again, the application of redemption is repentance. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, if we put verse 1 alongside verse 5, okay, we see a contrast. Notice, when we don't cover our sins, God covers them. See that, verse 1? But when we refuse and we still try to cover our sins, they remain uncovered. So David, he acknowledges his sin. He takes full and personal responsibility. He makes them known. God already knew them. Not telling him something he doesn't know. God knows every detail. And David here, he no longer covers them up his sins are now exposed. Open confession before God. Sin, iniquity, transgressions, deceit, that which he did with Bathsheba. So here you have sin, iniquity, and transgression. Spurgeon, in this text, he refers to this, um, and I quote, to the, to, he, he wants to see the silencing of this three-headed dog at the gates of hell. He wants to silence these, this three-headed dog by way of confession. Sin, iniquity, transgression. You, he said, that's emphatic, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the significance of forgiveness comes from the deep mercy of a very kind, compassionate, loving, merciful God. 
It doesn't come by way of repentance and confession. It comes from a merciful God, amen? Forgiveness is the fruit of forgiveness, not the root. Or I should say, repentance is the fruit of forgiveness, not the root. In other words, confession doesn't earn God's forgiveness, amen? He pays for it. He earned it for you. So it's not the cause, it's the condition. Repentance is the condition of forgiveness. God initiates. Sometimes we mistakenly think of confession as some type of mechanism. You, know, you kind of put, put the, 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 the slug or the quarter in, into the little machine and you get the little goodie out of the slot. I did this so. No, God is the forgiving God, compassionate, loving, and merciful, and he is the source. He, he grants the mercy that stirs up within his people repentance. Is that not what we see in the prodigal in Luke 15? He, he awakens us like he did this man, this young man. In Luke 15, verse 17, after a long time away, we don't know how long he was away from his father. In a foreign land, we read in verse 17, Luke 15, but when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. How did that happen? How did that happen? By the heavy-handedness of God, the mercy of misery. The father laid his hand heavily on the life of the prodigal, heavily upon the heart of the prodigal, and in due course, he by the Spirit of God, basically will say to the heart of the one in a foreign land, get up, get out, get on, go home. It's God's doing. The mercy of misery. Now, obstinate resistance to Almighty God, David says it will render you zapped of vigor, strength, physically, mentally, emotionally, and materially. Such was the case with the prodigal son, amen? So repentance is, is the product of God's forgiving love. Therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Ultimately, God's merciful forgiveness rescues us from the flood of God's wrath. The floodwaters of God's wrath. Notice the use of metaphors. Verse 4, dried up. Verse 6, a rush, a rush of great waters. If you think of the, the, the arid climate of Israel with all its ravines and wadis, you know, the dried out riverbeds that are all cracked, parched. That's what they do in the dry season. They dry up and they dry out. And 
at the beginning of the rainy, se- the rainy seasons, the floodwaters, they come down off the mountains and they create this force, rushing waters, floodwaters. And the picture is that without God's pardon, dried up as we are, we'll be consumed by the waves of his wrath, the storm of his wrath. You see that in Sermon on the Mount. Two homes, right? Built out of the same materials. They look the same from the outside, but when the floodwaters come, what's revealed? What they were built upon. It's the foundation. Christ is our foundation. So here, David's exhortation for God's people, he teaches, the, he teaches us here that although Almighty God is always near to those who are his own, he's always near, there are special times when he may be found. That is, he gives us wisdom to figure out why he seems so far away. That's what he does with David. And not confessing and repenting will lead us to this this aching, this groaning condition described back in verses 3 and 4. Can you imagine walking by David's palace at this time? Groaning. You ever been there where you can't put a sentence together? All you can do is groan. There are times in your life where you know, I should be saying I'm sorry. Oh, I know that. Do you know that? There are times something must be said, and you go silent. And the convicting hand of God comes upon you, and all you can do is, oh, you groan. Lord God, have mercy upon me. Who do you think that is that produces that in you? It's him. He was after David. He loved David. David was a sinner who was forgiven positionally once and for all and forever by the blood of Jesus Christ as he looked forward by faith. You're forgiven once and for all and forever positionally secure in Christ. But as far as your communion goes, you go through a season of unconfessed, unrepentant sin, what? this because he loves you misery we read a similar call in Isaiah 55 seek the Lord while he may be found we opened with this this morning call upon him while he's near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the Lord let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Psalm 66, 18 tells us, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord what? He will not hear me. He will not. He wills not to hear. Does he hear? Does he know? Of course he does. He wills not. So if my life is impure, like David in this season, living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin... My prayers don't get answered. Notice next in verses 8 through 11. The wisdom of the Lord. I will instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. 
I will counsel you with my eye on you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, verse 8. In verse 8, we come to the main point of the psalm. It's the middle of, of a chiastic structure, a chiasm. You know, you, you read, um, you, you work your way down from the top to the middle, and you read um, from the end and back, and you get to this central verse. You get to the center, and we find the conclusion. We find the main point. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, it's written there as though God is speaking. David still, he might be speaking here, but it's written as though Yahweh is speaking. He will counsel us through his word. His eye, metaphorically speaking, is upon us. In other words, God is ever attentive to his people. He watches over them. That's the lesson David wants to drive home. So we may sleep, we, we may slumber, we may lose interest, but if you're his, guess what? He doesn't go silent on you for more than a season. Beautiful. Verse 9, don't be a stubborn mule. David says, be sensitive to the Lord. Keep short accounts with him upon conviction. And let me encourage you with that. Keep short accounts with God. When you sin in your mind and your heart, confess it, repent, and keep on walking, Amen. Because the, the Spirit's at work in you, the living God. So if David is still speaking in verse 9, he's saying, don't be that mule that God has to put through this process because it's painful. It's painful. And then verses 10 and 11, we see those lessons are a call for joy in God. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad, be joyful in Yahweh. Rejoice, all you who are righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And if you're in Christ, you're the righteous. Amen? Rejoice. This isn't, you know, sappy, happy, clappy, Christianese rejoicing. This is deep down in the soul rejoicing. A resolute, steadfast understanding that your sins are forgiven. Rejoice. Now to close, I want to read the words of David as explained by the Apostle Paul. If you turn to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. He's talking about Abraham who lived long before David. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, that is accounted to you as your righteousness. Woohoo! <laughs> Woohoo! Amen. 
I say woo-hoo a lot. Like, I mean, to myself, especially when, you know, I, I sin some foolish sin. It's like, Lord, it's, this is the same thing again and again. And I'm reminded of this, so you, you confess, you repent, because the Spirit, he presses upon your heart. You confess it, and, and you, you can rest in the fact that you are cleansed, you are forgiven, you're right with God because of Christ alone. And you can go, woo, that's what I mean. Woo, thank you, Lord. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You think you can work your way into the favor of God? You're a debtor. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Where does that come from? Psalm 32. Now jump down, still context, Abraham verse 19. Now he did not weaken in fake, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, God promised that they would have a son. They were old. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Did he waver in that time, by the way? Did he? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The result of which was Ishmael. Through his concubine. Or maidservant. Maidservant. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Thousands of years later. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our what? Trespasses and raised for our justification. That's your position in Christ. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the joy we're talking about. The joy the world doesn't have. The joy and the happiness the world is trying to find through what they have, through what they possess, through what they can purchase, through some experience, it's in Christ alone. Justified by faith in Christ alone, the pearl, the pearl of great price in whom we stand, justified because of the perfect obedience of Christ in our place. Our forgiveness of sins will never be brought up once and for all, paid in full, amen? Only in him, Christ alone, does he no longer count sin against us. He alone covers our sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, amen? Do you know that?
Are you certain of that this morning? If you're not, you're not in Christ, you've heard, you've heard this for years, and you're holding him off. Well, at least you think you are. Come to Christ, repent of your unbelief, embrace him by faith, and you will be saved from his river of wrath assured of his forgiveness for you. Come to faith and be saved according to his grace. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we studied a few weeks ago, without David's great failure in this particular area, We wouldn't have Psalm 32 and we wouldn't have Psalm 51. So according to your sovereign rule and reign, as a forgiven man of God, he went through a very dark, dismal season for which these many, many years later minister to us so greatly. Lord, help us to embrace these truths by faith, help us to keep short accounts in order to experience the the continuous joy of knowing what it is to be a forgiven sinner, washed white as snow, cloaked in the righteous robes of Christ, and to live with thankful hearts for all that you have done in all that you promise yet to do by way of the finished work of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.